Welcome to the Westminster Town Hall Forum, where for 36 years we have engaged the public in reflection and dialogue on the key issues of our day from an ethical perspective. All forums are free and open to the public, and information on upcoming events can be found online at westminsterforum.org. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and LinkedIn as well. My name is Tim Hart Anderson. I'm the senior minister at Westminster Presbyterian Church, located on Nicollet Mall in beautiful downtown Minneapolis, and I'm the moderator of the forum. It's my pleasure to introduce today's guest speaker. The Reverend Dr. Otis Moss III is an ordained minister in the Progressive National Baptist Convention and the United Church of Christ. He has built his ministerial work on community advancement and social justice activism, practicing and preaching a theology that calls attention to the issues of mass incarceration, environmental justice, and economic inequality. He's the former pastor of the Tabernacle Baptist Church in Augusta, Georgia, and since 2008, he has served as a senior pastor of Trinity United Church of Christ in Chicago. A graduate of Morehouse College in Religion and Philosophy, he holds a Master of Divinity from Yale Divinity School and a Doctor of Ministry from Chicago Theological Seminary. He's the author and contributor to several books, including, among others, Blue Note Preaching in a Post-Soul World, Finding Hope in an Age of Despair, the Gospel Remix, Reaching the Hip-Hop Generation, and Preach, the Power and Purpose Behind Our Praise. Written with his father, the distinguished pastor, civil rights activist, and colleague of Dr. Martin Luther King, the Reverend Otis Moss, Jr. At a time when we need more than ever to call on the better angels of our nature, our guest today will offer insight and guidance into building the beloved community. Ladies and gentlemen, please join me in welcoming to the Westminster Town Hall Forum, the Reverend Dr. Otis Moss III. It is an absolute delight and an honor to, to be here uh, on this day, making my way from Chicago, uh, that was 70 degrees, and here uh, to Minneapolis and to be greeted by this wonderful weather. But Pastor Anderson, thank you so much. Uh, this beautiful space that we are in, and also to Minnesota Public Radio and to United uh, Theological Seminary. I've been trying to figure out how I got here. Um, I was, uh, as a young boy, I, I played basketball and there were two courts near my house. There was one court for little guys and there was one court for big guys. So when you were under 12, you were always praying that somebody got hurt on the big boys court uh, so that you could be elevated so that you could play with the big boys. And so I have no idea who got hurt, but I appreciate you all letting me be on the big boys court today. It is just absolutely an honor on this day. Come here to discuss and talk about something very point, uh, important and poignant, uh, not only because it is Holy Week, but uh, one of the great uh, prophets of our age, none other than Dr. Martin Luther King, Jr. Uh, he spoke of a very unique aspect of what America could be uh, if she decides to be, uh, that being the beloved community. And I believe if we are to, to, to live out this idea of the beloved community, that we must step back a little bit. 
uh, to actually draw from the history and the heritage and the stories that come from uh, people who've been kissed by nature's son, who were brought uh, to this country, not uh, voluntarily, but in chains. Now, there is a story that has passed from mouth to ear by southern griots from the Palmetto Trails of South Carolina, the low country as it is called, somewhere on the island of St. John. A mythic tale, a mythic tale of truth was born um, by the nostalgic hyperbole rooted and fertilized by the souls of displaced transatlantic Africans. No one knows exactly the origin of this tale. The details seem to differ depending upon the writer or the teller. The meaning always remains the same, though. This tale was forged between the wisdom of West Africa and the tragedy of American slavery. It is the story of the people who could fly. The tale begins on the island of St. John as displaced Africans who had been mislabeled as slaves toiled in the hot sun under the devious watchful eye of the nameless slave driver. Among this group of coffee, black, mocha, brown, caramel colored people was a woman tending her child. She was picking cotton. She had such creative kinetic dexterity that she could pick cotton with her right hand and she could caress the cheek of her son with the left hand. And she was picking cotton exhausted from the pressure of working in inhumid and humid conditions. When her body gave out under the stress and weight, in the words of W.E.B. Du Bois, of, she collapsed from the weight of being a problem and property at the same time. Her strong yet frail body simply collapsed under the weight of waking up every day to face the tragedy and absurdity uh, of a people and looking at them of a people who claimed to be Christian but always lived in contradiction. This woman, this nameless woman, fell to the ground and her boy, uh, who could be no more than six years of age, uh, looked at her mother, his mother in this disoriented state uh, knowing that uh, if the slave driver saw his mother uh, fallen on the ground, that there would be punishment that would be swift and would be hard. The slave drivers noticed that the woman had fallen under the gaze uh, of the shadow of cotton, and they climbed their beasts of burden to ride over to the place where she had disappeared. They moved across the field. Uh, but before the driver could reach her, there was an old man the people called preacher and prophet, but the slave master called old devil, who made her his way over to this woman. And the little boy looked into the kind face of the old man and simply asked, is it time? The old man just smiled and nodded and uttered one word in the woman's ear, uh, and the same word in the little boy's ear, he said, Kulibah. The woman miraculously gained strength. When the word entered her ear and landed on her spirit, as a matter of fact, other Africans stopped work, working to witness the birth of a queen. For the moment that she rose from the ground, she was not the same woman who had fallen to the ground. Something was different about her spirit. She was no longer three-fifths of a human being. She was no longer an enslaved African, but she was now one person standing with the imprint of God upon her. She grasped her son's hand, looked over at 
the slave drivers making their way on their beasts of burden. And she looked up toward the sky and she started to fly with her little boy. During this brief moment of disbelief, uh, uh, the slave drivers were completely confused. Uh, and during that disorientation, the old man, the preacher, ran over to every African he could find and started saying, Kuliba, Kuliba, Kuliba. And all of them started flying also. And they left the plantation, but the slave drivers grabbed the old man and they said, You must bring back our property. They beat him within an inch of his life, with blood coming down from his brow. And they said, Bring back our property. The old man just laughed and smiled. He said, I can't. I can't because once this word is in them, it cannot be removed from them. Uh, can you imagine the sight of seeing these dehumanized people flying? Three-fifths of a person flying, the disenfranchised flying, the disoriented flying, the discouraged flying, the dismissed flying, disadvantaged and diseased and disinherited and dislocated now flying all taking flight and trying, moving back to their home because they had a word that was in them that transformed who they were. There was something about this old man, this preacher, this prophet that gives us insight to building a beloved community. This old man, a shaman, a preacher, a prophet of an age now gone, offered a word to a people who were living a false mythology of racialized imagination. The old man dared to counter the racial myth with moral courage and prophetic imagination. It is the great writer and Old Testament scholar Walter Brueggemann who says prophetic imagination is the ability to envision a world that is not and act with every fiber of your being as if that world is even though it is yet to be created. The people defined as three-fifths of humanity, chattel and property, were given language for their minds and their hearts and ingested an eternal truth. Uh, these people, Howard Thurman says it with clarity, the most revolutionary concept known to humanity, the empowering idea that will catch fire in the souls of the oppressed is when you know that you are loved and that God is love and that love is imprinted upon your spirit. Zora Neale Hurston says it this way, says that when you know that you are loved and you are living love, it forces your soul to crawl out from its hiding place. This simple yet powerful idea is the rue for a revolutionary civic gumbo, where those on the margins find space in the center, and those in the center release civic real estate to make room for those on the margins. So the question is, how do we create this community, this beloved community? I give you one little simple thing that what we must do is we must speak truth about the nation and dare name the demon. Ah, yes, it is, it is. What we must do is during Holy Week, this Holy Week, and this gentleman I like by the name of Jesus, uh, uh, this gentleman, he says uh, that if you want to be able to exercise a demon, you've got to know the name. If you are afraid to speak the name, it will always possess you and possess your family. And there is a demon that we've refused to address in America, and that is what I call the racialized imagination, a myth that we have created that we now live by 
We have constructed our entire society by this particular myth. In 1619, when 20 odd Negroes, as one scholar says, arrived upon these shores, they did not come with this idea of a racialized myth. Some say they were indentured, some said that they were slaves. There's still argument on how they arrived here. But nonetheless, one of these first Africans in Jamestown, Virginia, after his indentured servitude, he was able to amass 200 acres of land. They did not look at him through the lens of race, but through the lens of class. But something that happened in America, one was called the Bacon Rebellion, where uh, slave Africans and also indentured servants got together and realized the real problem was the person who owned the land. And as a result of that, something happened that shifted in America. And that was the beginning of a racialized consciousness or a racialized imagination. Defining one group by physical status and class in order to protect the owners. The only reason that we have this idea, this hierarchy of racialized ideas is simply to protect landowners from the 17 and 1800s. The idea of race does not even appear in American literature almost until the late 1700s. And it was because there were ethnic groups from Europe coming over who were working on farms and working on plantations next to Africans, and they realized as they started talking at night, saying that the real problem is the guy in that house up there. And so how do we make sure that these two groups are apart from each other? Well, we invent something known as race. An arbitrary idea where, where you get to be white, because you're not white in Europe, but when you arrive in America, you become white. If you go back to Europe, they don't say, hello, white people. They don't do that. You become an American or a particular ethnicity, raising the question about your surname, where is your ethnic connection? But in America, we produce something, this racialized imagination, and from 1619 to 1863, the period of slavery, we began to nurture our consciousness with this idea. And then once emancipation arrived, we then, as a result of four million Africans being released into America who were highly skilled, they were competing uh, in terms of labor with people coming from Europe. And in order to ensure that those who were from Europe would receive their jobs, then a second phase of slavery that we never talk about entered into the American landscape. And that second moment was known as peonage share cropping. It was also known as the vagrancy laws because the South needed to be rebuilt. And the rebuilding of places like Alabama was as a result of the re-enslavement of over 100,000 people of African descent. Where from 1863 all the way up until in some places in 1972, but mostly to 1936, according to Stephen Blackman, is that if you were a black man, Standing on a corner with another black man, you could be arrested if you did not have papers. Not only would you be arrested, but then you would have your labor sold when you were placed in jail. They would sell your labor to places like U.S. Steel. 
So all of Alabama was rebuilt by re-enslaved labor. So before you say roll tide, you need to know the one who actually rolled the tide in the first place. And so that period of re-enslavement also began a period of what is called the criminalization of people of color. Now remember now, we, we now in our imagination have this idea that, that people of African descent are somehow criminals because that has been placed into our imagination. Is not true. Why would you have a criminal take care of your child from 1619 to 1863? Somebody had to place a myth because if you read the literature, it was considered that Africans had such ingenuity, were so trustworthy, but as soon as emancipation starts, all of a sudden we begin to talk about the idea of criminality, and that comes out of the prohibition era. Because speakeasy, some of you, so-called juke joints, clubs, however you want to say it, speakeasies were always built right next to African-American communities and black people could not go there, though we could perform there. And in these speakeasies, there was an uneasy alliance between the police and also underground activity, better known as, better known as uh, those criminal activities. Uh, the underground activity, the underground economy, uh, and they had, an, they had an uneasy relationship. Because if you arrested someone in, an, in a speakeasy, they would be white. But it was easier for the police to arrest people around the speakeasy. And as they arrested people around the speakeasy, then criminologists began to take stats and said, it seems as if the numbers that we have coincide with a rise in crime, and that crime seems to come from people of color. Not realizing the police, especially in Chicago, would not want to go into a play, a, an establishment owned by Al Capone. It was easier to arrest people around Al Capone's establishment. Thus creating stats and then academics then writing the idea that there must be something inherently or genetically wrong with a group of people. Thus, the idea of the most trusted then becomes the most criminalized in the American imagination. And that then leads to a person by the name of Richard Nixon who then declares a war on crime and the re-imprisonment on the third level, again, of people of color. All of this that we must begin to tell the truth. And this war on drugs, this new Jim Crow, mandatory minimums and bail bond, where you literally are placing people in jail because they don't have the money to be able to put up bond or bail. And they languish in jail, not because they've done anything. The only reason you have jail is for people who are waiting for trial. You're supposed to be innocent until proven guilty, unless you're poor. And so we have now moved into another re-enslavement and privatization of our prison system. So how do we talk about the beloved community and we won't tell the truth about the community? So how do we move to this beloved moment? Well, I have some good news for you, not just these pieces. I can share with what we have done in Chicago at Trinity United Church of Christ. Because we believe that you can connect mass incarceration, economic justice, and environmental justice together to begin to build a beloved community. 
How do you do that? Well, well, we have a, have a church on the south side of Chicago, and we wanted to attack these ideas. How do we attack these ideas? So here, this young preacher comes along. I said that we want to do a green renovation of the church and put a green roof on the church. But little did I know that there were some people who didn't know what I was talking about. And I heard in the barber shop one day, the barber told me, he said, one of your members was in here, Reverend, and they said that that preacher wants to put a putting green on top of the church. We've got to get him out of here. So I had to do some more education about what it means to be green, that we are called to take care of the environment. And so we put together a, a listening tour and began to teach about what it means, what eco-justice is all about. But as we put the plans together, we said, we don't just want to be a green church. We want to make sure that anyone who's working on this project is a returning citizen, somebody who has a record so that they will have the specialization and training to be able to uh, not only support their family, but even start their own business. So we put together a renovation that was green on one hand, but had to hire those who are from the mass incarceration system. And then we had contractors who were hyper-local. If you were gonna work on this building, you had to be in the community. You had to hire people from this zip code. So all of a sudden, we're doing economic justice, eco-justice, and we're also supporting those who are coming out of prison. And that became the model of what we did. And then, right down the street, we have a library, the Carter G. Woodson Library, a library that has needed uh, improvement for about 17 years. They've had a uh, scaffolding out there for 17 years because it, bricks were falling on people's heads, so they put a scaffold out there, didn't fix the library. It's a, it's a regional library. It has the largest collection of African-American literature in the Midwest. People from the University of Illinois come and do their research there. Uh, people uh, from University of Chicago do their research there, but it was falling apart. We looked and did the research and found out that city of Chicago had been building libraries left and right, but none in the African-American community. So we decided to roll up on the library system and let them know that we need to make sure that this library is taken care of. You can't argue with a library. Anybody who argues with a library, there's something wrong with you. <laughs> Libraries are important. And so we sat down and shared the information that over 8,000 books are checked out a month. Over 25,000 uh, people utilize the computer every month that this library is used. We had all of, the, all of the universities that are using this library. And when we put this coalition together, we found out it was not just people in our community. We found out that the University of Illinois showed up. University of Chicago showed up, DePaul showed up, Loyola showed up. We had universities all around to say how important this library was. And all of a sudden, they said they, we didn't have any money, but all of a sudden, when all these people showed up, they found $10 million to redo the library. <laughs> we didn't just say we just don't want it renovated, we want it hyper-local. We want to make sure that those who are working on this are people coming out of prison who are dealing with the mass incarceration system. And just those two examples, that's $16 million of reinvestment on the south side of Chicago, led by a small little church. Just a church deciding that we can build together is the basis of building a new community. And this is how we begin to build a beloved community. When we are looking to include the most vulnerable, 
But I must close on this day to say, well, how I understand that, that, that idea of building and creating on one level. But, but give me some other ideas, Moss, of how do we do this. Let me give you a theoretical idea of how do we build the beloved community that one must understand jazz and the black faith tradition. That if you want to understand the beloved community, if you understand these true traditions, they are the traditions that teach us democracy before democracy even knew what democracy was. Uh, how? Why? What do you mean here? Well, you must understand the origins of jazz. It comes out of New Orleans in a place called the Congo Square where on Sunday, Africans would mingle together along with Native Americans. They would hear those polyrhythms, but also hear the sounds of French and also people who were Spanish. And those sounds came together and created what we now know as jazz. But jazz is a democratic music. What I love about jazz is it takes instruments that are not supposed to play together. It takes a saxophone that is for the marching band. And then the piano, which is supposed to be classical and European. A trap drum set and a bass or a trombone or whatever there may be. And all of them play together in one band. And what is so beautiful about it is jazz does something that no other music does. Everybody has the right to solo. That whatever you bring to the table, you have the right to bring your own unique cultural heritage to the table. So the saxophone, when the saxophone solos, you never hear the piano saying, you must sound like me. And when the piano solos, the piano doesn't tell the drum, you must sound like me. The bass does not say, you must sound like me. No, they all play together knowing that we come from different places. But when we bring our music together, we can create a new sound and create a love supreme. And that is the beauty of jazz, and that is the beauty of when we decide to have a beloved community. And I can see in my own sanctified imagination, bringing together all of these polyrhythms together. And that, on one level, teaches us democracy. But also, the black faith tradition teaches us democracy in the beloved community, especially a song known as Amazing Grace. Amazing Grace, that song that's written by John Newton, but what people do not know is that Newton wrote the words, but the melody comes from somewhere else. John Newton, yes, he was an enslaver and supposedly repented, but the story goes, there's one story that Newton was on a ship and there was a storm and he prayed, and that is when the storm ceased and he gave his heart to God. That's one side, but there is another side that's told within the African-American community that it had nothing to do with John Newton's prayers, that John Newton was on a slave ship. And down in the bow of the ship, there was some moaning going on. There was some singing going on. And the sing, the sound was so beautiful during the storm that it made its way up to heaven. And angels bent over the banister and said, tell God what God's children are doing right now. And God bent over the banister of heaven and said, shh, and stop the storm. And that is how Amazing Grace was born. Amazing Grace was born because the, the, the melody is African, but the words are European. Because what is beautiful about Amazing Grace, it is a song that is played in the pentatonic scale. Not the heptatonic scale, the pentatonic scale using just five notes, the black keys on the piano. You can play all spirituals just on the black keys. So in other words, uh, you can't play Amazing Grace without the black keys. If you remove the black keys, you may have grace, but it won't be amazing. <laughs> but when they play together, 
something unique happens in the process. And I believe that a beloved community can be created when all of a sudden we allow people to solo. Uh, First Nation people to sing their song and undocumented and documented sing their song. The Muslim, the Sikh, and the Hindu who have been profiled to sing their song. Sisters to sing their song. The LGBTQ sing their song. Black people sing their song together. We can play in a brand new band of Afro-Latino rhythms, feminist chords, queer dynamics, Pentecostal shouts, Mississippi moans, Native American melodies, Asian resonance, and Muslims notes when we play all together all of a sudden America will hear the words of Kuliba, 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 Kuliba and we shall fly. Wow. Thank you very much, Reverend Dr. Otis Moss III, speaking at Westminster Town Hall Forum, broadcast from Westminster Presbyterian Church on Nicollet Mall in downtown Minneapolis. My name is Tim Hart Anderson. I'm the senior minister here at Westminster Presbyterian Church and moderator of the forum. Our speaker today is a senior pastor of Trinity United Church of Christ in Chicago, the Reverend Dr. Otis Moss III. While the ushers collect questions from the in-house audience, I'd like to thank the co-sponsors of today's forum, Hennepin County Library with funding from the Minnesota Arts and Cultural Fund and United Theological Seminary of the Twin Cities and its Kaleo Center. We invite you to join us for our next forum on Thursday, May 4 at noon when Richard Haas, President of the Council on Foreign Relations, will explore a timely topic. A world in disarray, shaping a new American foreign policy. Look for further information at westminsterforum.org. And now, Dr. Moss, if you would return to the pulpit, I will present the questions from the audience. First question has to do with your concept of the racialized imagination in America. Given the events of the last months and years, are you confident that the racialized imagination of America is dissipating, or do you think it's getting worse? <laughs> it's getting worse, <laughs> without a doubt. There's, we've, we have never truly engaged the idea of the racialized imagination. We've never really truly engaged whiteness. Whiteness imprisons people who think they're white. Whiteness creates a hierarchy versus a circle where we sit at the table together. And it must be uh, pulled apart so that we can begin to celebrate our diversity, but not diversity on a social construction that is arbitrary, that was designed specifically to protect landowners in the 1700s. We're better than this. Where's the outrage at the violent deaths in our community and nation in the last few days, thinking about Chicago particularly? Chemical weapons are horrible, but so is a gunshot that takes a life. The outrage happens every single day, holding in your arms uh, the mother of one who lost their child. Outrage in the African-American community happens every single day, but it's never reported. Uh, we deal with it on a 
day-to-day basis. And then we have peculiar things that we will say, like black-on-black crime. There is no such, a th- there's no such thing as black-on-black crime. Uh, it, it's, it's a misnomer. We don't go around saying, hey, white on white crime. Hey, you know, Irish on Irish crime. No. It is based upon proximity and poverty. So if you want integrated crime, integrate the neighborhoods and integrate the income gap that, you know, so that we can, if you want to deal with that. But this idea, again, goes to the racialized imagination that there is something different about one group than another group. And so outrage happens every single day. But the communities, the three communities in Chicago that are seeing the greatest levels of despair and violence are the three communities that you can go through that have not been invested in in almost 35 to 40 years. It is like stepping back in time. And then people want to raise the question, what is going on? If you want to stop a bullet, the best way to stop a bullet is with a job. It's one of the best ways if you want to cure. And that's a program we're working on now called the Live Free Program with PICO. Along with the Solomon Group, we are going a 10-city tour of building entrepreneurs in the most devastated communities, hiring people who are coming out of prison and training the next generation of entrepreneurs. It will not come from the outside, it will come from within. Is there a connection between the American attachment to guns, what we might call the weaponized imagination, and the myth of race? Oh, without a doubt. Uh, One of the attachments in reference to uh, the idea of guns, if you look in the South, uh, the connection of having guns was this idea that somehow uh, black people are going to rise up and take everybody out. Uh, And over and over again, you have literature that is written about this idea. Uh, we've seen it from, um, uh, in different aspects historically, uh, from the Red Summer of 1919 uh, to different cases, but it's always in relationship to fear that those that we have mistreated will treat us like we treated them. Kind of the reverse of the golden rule. Uh, What is something we should keep in mind? This is from a student. What should we keep in mind if we get rejections from employers who may be reluctant to hire us for perhaps having no experience, maybe other reasons? What what do you do with young people who are rejected from job applications over and over again? That's a a great question. Uh, One thing to, let me give you an explanation of what we do. At Trinity, every summer we attempt to hire 50 young people. Job readiness program. It's a grant program that we have. But sharing with them uh, everything about from, from dress, they work in our accounting department, they work in our engineering department, uh, they work in every, every department that we have them so that they can be ready when they go to the job. And understanding that rejection is a part of life, that you will get rejected. Now, there are some people who reject you for the wrong reasons. But if you are appropriately trained, have the necessary mentors, and they can, people can funnel you in the right direction, then you can find a job. Because let's be honest, people normally don't just get a job by an application. It is better known as the hookup. You know somebody, they call somebody, and guess what? They now look at your application differently. We want to create those same opportunities for young people in our community to be able to pick up the phone and say, you should hire so-and-so. Building that network, and that becomes a part of the beloved community. 
Are you willing to take a chance, mentor and support a young person so that they can have the opportunity and experience so that they also can open the door for someone else? Another question from a student. Do you think love is enough to build a good community or do we need law? What's the role of laws in building a beloved community? I believe beloved community, you need two things is, will be the foundation, love and justice. Unfortunately, in America, because of our language, uh, we only have one word for love. Every other, most other cultures have multiple words for love, but it all depends on how you say the word you know what you're talking about in America. I love you. I love you. You know, it's all dependent on how you say it uh, in America. But if you look in Greek, in, in the Greek words, uh, especially biblically, you notice that there were three different words for love. There was phila, where we get the word Philadelphia, you know, uh, family love, uh, familiar love. There's eros, where we get the word erotic uh, from, that uh, relational love. Then there is agape, the love that God has for us. Within the African tradition, there is a word called Ubuntu. Uh, Bishop Tutu would use that word. Nelson Mandela said that my humanity is caught up in your humanity. And for me to destroy you means I destroy myself. And so, one, we need to change our definition of love, but we have to have love connected to justice. Love without justice is sentimentality. And justice without love can become legalism or brutality. But when love and justice walk down the aisle and get married, they produce uh, children, one by the name of transformation, the other by the name of liberation. And they have the ability to create and become the foundation of a new community. Those must be the virtues. Then you can write laws when you're rooted in love because your laws then will raise questions about mercy. Because when you have love rooted in your laws, you will then say, we don't need a mandatory minimum for 15 years, even though this, for this person for their first offense. We then have to look at the circumstance of what is happening. We have taken the power away from judges and passed the power to prosecutors, many of them who are looking to get reelected. Number of questions about the role of language in America. Do you think we should all attempt to stop using certain terms like black and white or even race? and start describing people differently relative to those concepts? I think that we need to be honest about language. So when we speak about black and white, we're for some, you're talking race. But when you're talking, especially within the African-American community, when we speak of the word black, we're also we're talking culture, not just color. We're talking about being rooted in terms of ethnicity. So I'm part of Trinity United Church of Christ, an incredibly diverse congregation, primarily of African-Americans, but African-Americans from the entire diaspora. So when we speak of black, we're not talking color, we're talking about the black person whose first language is Spanish, or maybe Yoruba, or maybe Kosa, uh, or, or maybe French. So we're talking about culture. And so when we can begin to talk about culture, that's when the rich rue of creating this civic gumbo is created. But as long as we're caught up on color and we reject culture, we never get to ethnicity, where we then find rich heritage and stories in everyone's ethnicity. How do we 
uh, understand uh, that congregation, I mean, an audience like this, which is about 80 or 90% white, help us understand Black Lives Matter in a way that it seems constructive and, and productive in, in this change that you're talking about in our society? Black Lives Matter. Good. They do. Now, now to, to help someone out, I, I use this example to teach why Black Lives Matter, why must we say Black Lives You hear that question often. And it's kind of funny to me, um, but the reason that we have to say Black Lives Matter is because Black Lives don't matter, number one. But let me give you an example. If my house is burning and I need the firemen to show up, and the firemen show up and then someone comes from a house three blocks over and said, wait a minute, all houses matter. No, my house is burning right now. I need water on my house. Because if you are making the statement that all houses matter, you're really saying my house does not matter. Because until we put out my fire, then all houses will not matter. But if you allow my house to burn, then the embers from my house may end up burning your house. And guess what? And all the houses, I guess, will then burn down as a result of being inattentive to the issues of the day. Amen. Can you say more about the connection between economic justice, eco-justice, and racial justice? You have give us, given us a good illustration in your own congregation, but is that happening elsewhere in Chicago or other parts of the oh, yeah, country this, that you know about? Yeah, this is happening in other places. There's a wonderful group we work with uh, called Faith and Place, uh, which is an, a not-for-profit that is about 126 congregations across Illinois uh, working on issues of of economic justice and also racial justice, bringing together congregations that normally would not be connecting with each other uh, around issues like water. Guess what? We all need water. We all need to drink water and we all need to have safe water and to protect our waterways. And so Faith in Place is a group that's, that's doing incredible work. They just recently launched um, a, a much more uh, 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 focused lobbying section uh, of, their, of their organization. Uh, that is doing some, we're very proud of this legislation that's slowly moving through uh, the Senate in uh, Illinois, uh, but it's one of the first of its kind where one of the large conglomerates, ComEd, uh, wanted to do some, you know, they wanted to pass some legislation in reference to, I guess with solar power or something of that nature. Um, and so we said that if any environmental legislation is gonna be passed, um, and if any of these big corporations wanna pass legislation, we're gonna bring together a coalition of people to say that any bills that are passed have to be well, attached to these bills, you have to hire, and on this bill, we, the minimum is 2,000. 2,000 people who are formerly incarcerated. That's 2,000 people who could not get a job. It is the only area in America where it's legal to discriminate against someone. If you went to prison, I legally can say to you, I do not have to hire you. I can legally, even in certain states, take away your right to vote permanently. You will not vote in America because even though you've served your time, you can legally do this. This is a new form of slavery. And when we begin to push these things out, and I believe that the environmental work, uh, Oakland, California, is doing some great work around this. Um, Green for All, uh, started by Van Jones, 
great work around this, these issues. And I would encourage, you know, Minnesota is, a, is, is, is poised to do some great work to ensure not only you protect the planet, but you protect people, and you ensure that there is an investment in vulnerable communities. I, I can't uh, miss this opportunity to describe what's happening here at Westminster. We've got a project going on next door. We're building green roof, and it's not a putting green on that roof. Mm -hmm. And we're going to recycle and reuse all the rainwater coming on the, uh, the roofs of this building and flush our toilets with it. And the project began by hiring Better Futures Minnesota, which is a yes. men coming out of prison. And we're going to house, uh, we're building a, a housing development in downtown Minneapolis to, for 70 men coming out of prison. So Outstanding. We're with Outstanding. you. That's work. That's good work. I'm glad to hear that. That's exciting. Advice. We're, a lot of questions asking for advice today. And uh, as a pastor, you know, you're, you're accustomed to this, I assume. Maybe not a question quite like this. What advice do you have for a majority community or a white church, largely white church, to become active in creating the beloved community? Well, I think that what you all are doing uh, here at Westminster is a part of it. I think thinking creatively, for example, there's so many churches, I'll just use churches as an example, that the people are building new churches and renovating churches. Why shouldn't your building also reflect your theology? Why shouldn't your architecture also reflect where your heart is? So how we can build community simply by thinking creatively. Or just in, in when we talk about education, I think I believe in public education. I believe in the, the library. I'm a library fan. I just, I just want to let you know. I love the library. I love the library. Anybody who's against the library, something's wrong with you, really. We need to have you examined, um, really. Uh, but one of the ideas that uh, we've been talking about is very frustrating to deal with, but to create for every library, every library should be, a, I believe, a high-speed Internet hub. Not, not, not the high speed that you get at your house. You know, that's, that's not really high speed. That's the speed they want to give you when it's working. Um, <laughs> but I'm talking about that military-grade high speed. Now imagine this. We have a high, every library is a high-speed internet hub. Free internet, free Wi-Fi within several blocks, maybe several miles. Then the city or a group of people can then begin to talk with tech firms if you want to set up and you want to get the tax breaks, you need to set up a hub or an office in the most vulnerable community. That community begins to shift. But don't just set up an office. You then have to hire people in that neighborhood. That's how we build community. These simple little things. It does not cost anything for free internet. Now, I, know they want, I know they charge us, but it's really not that expensive. All of this stuff is, all, the infrastructure has already been laid out. South Korea recognizes it. Japan recognizes it, China recognizes it, Dubai recognizes it, but the United States, we are still allowing corporations to keep us from building the kind of community and city we are called to build. I want to return to your, uh, your image of us playing jazz together. How do we build the beloved community, have everybody uh, uh, solo at some point in the song, if those who hold power don't want to create a new song? Ah, that's, the, that's a great question. You see, that, you know, there's some people who will be on the sidelines of the band, and then there's some people who are going to be in the band. But see, when you create such a cacophony, when you create such music, 
you will begin to force them, or I love the metaphor of bringing down the walls of Jericho. The walls are brought down by music. The walls are brought down by sonic resonance. The collective people coming together, their hearts connecting and saying that what we believe cannot come down. Now, historically, it was believed that the walls of Jericho, no man, only God could bring these walls down. These walls were so thick and so deep and all of this. But yet when they decided to sing, when they decided to shout, the walls come down. And I believe that when we decide to sing and shout, certain walls come down. How do you think a Barack Obama became president? Somebody started singing long before he decided to run. And that resonance brought down, put some cracks in the foundation. Maybe we got to learn how to sing again if we're going to bring down some walls. Mm. Since, since you raised the name of our former president and you're from Trinity United Church in Chicago, there is a connection there that was his church. And we remember the controversy in quotes that arose from his association with the church and the preacher there. You're the preacher there now. The president is moving back to Chicago one day. <laughs> Will he come back to Trinity United Church? I have no idea. <laughs> you would welcome him, though. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, nice of you. Oh, right. Absolutely. Yeah. We would certainly welcome the whole first family. <laughs> Talk about criminal justice here. What, what one thing would you suggest, those of us who are concerned about the, the mass incarceration, what one thing would you suggest we do locally? To bail. Bail, 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 bail. Um, and I'll give the example of Chicago and have a relationship with Sheriff Dart. We were on, he's, he's the uh, sheriff for the Cook County Jail. And we were on a program together and he's just a wonderful, you know, just really progressive gentleman. He says, uh, I have a history major, I'm a history major, a uh, history degree, and I'm sheriff uh, of the largest mental health facility in the United States, Cook County Jail. 70% of the people in Cook County Jail are there because we have shut down all of these mental health facilities. And he says, he, he says I, I go to certain communities and we get a lot of compassion when we talk about mental health. The other thing, this is the sheriff of Cook County saying this, he says, we need to get rid of bail. He says, I had a young man who was in jail for a year because he couldn't raise $500 waiting for trial. And this was not, we said, we don't hold violent offenders. He said, that's a real small portion. If we can get rid of, he said, all the statistics show that if you remove bail, people show up for their trials 99% of the time because most of these violations are not these violations you think of because of media. But these are everything from moving violations to, you, you name it. And when they're in jail so long, they then lose their job. When they lose their job, they then can't raise money for the bail. So we penalize people for being poor. The simple act of allowing a person, assuming that they're innocent um, until proven guilty, is a way that we can live out uh, the beloved community. Thank you very much. Last question here. You started with it. You ended with it. Kodaba. What does it mean? Can you translate that uh, word? Kuliba. 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 Uh, kuliba simply means God is in you. And God is with you. And that moment when the old man, the prophet, the preacher, the shaman, the griot says Kuliba, 
for people who had been living with the false racialized imagination, they threw off the mythology and became who they were supposed to be, and that allowed them to fly. Thank you very much, Dr. Otis Moss III.